When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's nothing that opens up your mind, even your heart, to new and unknown things than travel. Travel as much as you can. Go to places that are even a little bit outside your comfort zone, for sure. Travel has been the biggest joy of my life and just seeing new things, seeing things outside of our comfort zone, seeing new cultures has just been wonderful. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking about one of my favorite topics, travel, with longtime friend of the pod and fellow PNG alumni, Kasser Sharif. I actually host a third podcast that is not about comic books, Learnings from Leaders, the PNG alumni podcast. We sit down with leading executives to talk about their personal and professional experiences. And every once in a while, we bring back some of our favorite guests to go deeper on another topic. Kasser is PNG's former head of Pakistan and Ukraine and the author of the book, When Tribesmen Came Calling. Since reading Kasser's book years ago, in our many follow-up conversations, it's been clear Kasser is a kindred soul. We share one thing in common that many of us love, travel. Specifically in how travel allows us to experience new and different cultures. Kasser is based in Washington, D.C., and a frequent columnist in News International Pakistan. In a recent article, he wrote of his travels to Egypt, and it reminded me of the many chapters of his book devoted to experiencing cultures both familiar and unfamiliar, so I had to reach out. Let's jump right into our travel chat with fellow P&G alumni traveler, Kasser Sharif. Kasser, welcome back to the pod. It's great to talk to you again. Thank you, Rowan. Same here. Wonderful to be on this podcast together. Yeah. So look, before we jump in and start trading travel stories, I think so much of both of our loves of experiencing new things probably comes from the juxtapositions in our origins. I'm a kid from Alabama, raised by Indian immigrant parents by way of Asia, Africa, and Europe. And while I spent most of my youth in America, I started bouncing around the world to visit families as a kid. And as soon as I had enough money working for P&G, I get out there and my, my love of travel never stopped. But I mean, before we get into just your travels, could you recap not just your origins bouncing around, you know, the subcontinent, Pakistan and Bangladesh, but also Turkey and the foreign land of Cincinnati. I mean, <laughs> how has that informed your personal and professional choices over the years? Really, it's, uh, you know, obviously it, in those days as I was growing up, I wasn't thinking that I'm bouncing around all these different places. But growing up, my family moved between what was East and West Pakistan. And when I once had finished high school, I got admitted to a university in Ankara, Turkey, moved there. and then. Looking to go to a business school in the U.S., I got admitted to University of Cincinnati. Little did I know at that time, nor did I think 
that Cincinnati would play such a big role in the rest of my life. But uh, it has been from one place to the next to the next. And even when I was going to college in Ankara, I traveled every summer to Europe, hitchhiked through many different countries. I even uh, I did a road trip from Turkey back to Pakistan, driving through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, and so on. And, and I've had some very interesting adventures from those days. Well, I hear two different things there. Like one is, and I've had this conversation with, you know, your generation, right? Other leaders, my own parents. It's just kind of the expectation. Well, I had to go from point A to point B. Why wouldn't I, you know, go get that university degree in that foreign country? It's just, that's the best opportunity. But then the contrast I heard was, but then I had the chance to drive across <laughs> the Middle East. Like, when did it kind of strike you that, oh, this is more than just kind of a thing I have to do to go from point A to point B? There's a love that started to develop. See, actually, the, the love that started to develop was more in experiencing, you know, as we are driving through all these, there weren't strange countries to me then, or as I'm hitchhiking through Europe, that I'm enjoying seeing new places, meeting new people, or seeing new things on a meager, if one can even call that, budget. So it was just interesting. And frankly, uh, during those times when I traveled or when we drove across, I didn't have the luxury to actually figure out what are interesting things and places to see. We were just kind of going from here to there and traveling through and uh, the experiences were just kind of coming at you, you know, and, and later on, only when you reflect on it, you, you think about, hmm, that was pretty interesting. You know, what we saw there was quite interesting, but at that time, it was just happening. You know, that's all. That's amazing. I, I, I have to ask, because I know my parents would never let me hitchhike across the continent, but tell me a story from the hitchhiking, some of the people you met. What, what's something that stands out from that hitchhiking experience? What's the highlight upon reflection? You know, the, the hitchhiking that I did was mostly in Western Europe. In the summer, I would get from Ankara to someplace in Europe, and I think mostly to Austria or Germany, and then I would hitchhike around there. So one of the interesting stories is that I, uh, I was trying to get to Brussels, where I had a very close friend uh, from Frankfurt. So I, I hitchhiked uh, towards Belgium, and then somebody dropped me off what I thought was pretty close to the Belgian border. It turned out it was 17 kilometers, roughly 12 miles, and uh, I couldn't get a ride. And in the meantime, a, a cop on a motorbike, this is Germany, close to a city there called Aachen. A cop came by and said, hey, pedestrians are not allowed on the autobahns. And I'm like, okay, but I'm here. So, you know, somebody had dropped me there at an intersection between two highways. So what am I supposed to do? And he said, well, there's a, there's a rest area two kilometers from here. Why don't you walk to the rest area? I permit you to do that, but then stay there until you get a ride out of the rest area. And oh, by the way, I have to fine you five Deutschmark for violating the laws and walking as a pedestrian along a highway. So I paid the five Deutschmark. He gave me a receipt and he said, well, if anybody, any other cop stops you, you can show them that you've already been fined and they will not find you again. <laughs> so I walked the two kilometers to the rest area, but the rest area was only 10 or 12 miles from the German-Belgian border. No cars were stopping there, but I, I guess people would feel like they can just go another 10 minutes and they can get to the border where there were restaurants and so on. I waited there probably for more than an hour and I finally started to walk. And I walked the 12 miles with a backpack on my back. I got to the border and there were signs. Buses go this way. Cars go this way and 
trucks go this way. And there were no signs for where pedestrian is supposed to go. <laughs> so I, I just got in the line for cars and literally the cars in front of me and the cars behind me. And I am walking as if I am a car. I got to the border kiosk and the guy looked at me and he said, which car are you in? And I'm like, I'm in no car. I'm just walking. <laughs> so anyhow, he stepped my passport and he asked me to set aside uh, or stay aside. And there was a little restaurant and a guy in a fancy Italian sports car came by and I, uh, I said to him, hey, I'm trying to get to Brussels. Can you take me there? And he said, what part of Brussels? And I said, I don't really know. I just have an address written down. He said, okay, hop in my car. It was an Alfa Romeo. And he said, I will drop you in the middle of Brussels and you figure it out. So that was kind of an interesting <laughs> little journey that I had. I was probably like 19 years old at the time and uh, <laughs> doing my thing. Did your parents ever know that you did that? No, 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 no. My, my parents did not know. And actually, after getting to Belgium, I then went on to London. I have a, an uncle who lived on the outskirts of London, and I called him from the border. And he said, where have you been? Your parents have been searching for you for the last month. <laughs> this is before cell phones. This is before right. email. And I just didn't think that I needed to tell them where I was. I mean, this was summer, and I was in Europe. So, anyhow. There's a whole other story that goes with that, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for now as to how I got into, into uh, UK because uh, I had like $35 on me. And the border agent asked me, how are you planning to get back to Ankara? So anyhow, like the whole story unfolded from there. <laughs> Fortunately, our audience is not under the age of 25, so I don't have to put a disclaimer on the front of this episode. <laughs> so while your parents don't know this story, do your children know this story? They do now. Yeah, they do now. <laughs> <laughs> After the age of 25. And you know what they say? They, they tell me this story and my, my trip to Afghanistan, they tell me that you would never let us do something like that. And I have the standard parent response, which is, Oh, but those were different times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could probably spend the whole podcast talking about like lessons in parenting and living on those things. But I mean, I want to ask another question of, and, and I've had this experience, by the way, I have had a uh, crossing a national border experience in, in Central America. Hmm. It's kind of similar where, you know, you get the ticket and people are like, okay, and you hold on to the ticket to, to be your get out of jail free card. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I really want to know about is now you, you've kind of had homes in two parts of the world in multiple parts of your life, the United States and Pakistan and different parts of Pakistan. And you've gone back, you've gone back and worked in these mm -hmm. areas at, at different phases of your life. We can talk either about the U.S. or Pakistan, but having been back there at times in your young adulthood and then times in your call it middle and older adulthood, can you talk about the changes that you've seen in these parts of the world? Because you don't experience change until you leave something and come back to it, you know? Like, what has been your reflection on going back to Pakistan versus the Pakistan you remember growing up with mm -hmm. and coming up with as an adult? But the same for, for the United States. You've been in and out of the country multiple times in your career. Yeah, you know, Pakistan one is a tough one in that I was there. Uh, I grew up there till I was 18 years old. I left to go to college in Turkey and on to business school. And I went back as an employee of Procter & Gamble at age 36. Mm -hmm. So I was coming back to this country in a whole different environment, a different circumstance, I should say, for myself. I felt like, you know, so much of my memories of Pakistan from growing up there, when I went back to the same place and even visited the neighborhoods that I had grown up in, they did not look anything like 
what I remembered and what I had left 18 years ago. A lot of it was related to just the explosion of the population, urban areas, the urban sprawl, everything becoming a lot more congested and so on. I went back like there was a, a, a neighborhood near Raul, in Rawalpindi that I grew up in uh, from, I guess I was in grade seven all the way to 12. And so that's those five years, very formative, uh, formative years for me and for most of us, five or six years. And I could not recognize the neighborhood, the house that we used to live in, that plot of land had been subdivided into eight different plots and eight small homes. And it didn't look anything like what I remembered. So really, in a way, it was a, it was a sad feeling. I mean, I, I told somebody or wrote somewhere that the city had uh, grown tremendously and erased the neighborhood of my childhood. Mm. That was the feeling that I, I felt. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a, the second time I went back to India with my father, I got to visit, you know, his childhood home that I'd visit when I was a young, a young boy. And then when he took my older sister back, that house had been demolished to make way for more. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a weird feeling. I don't know how I'd feel if, you know, the home I grew up in Alabama didn't exist. Mm -hmm. What did you notice about the changes in the sensibilities of the people in Pakistan you knew, the mood that was there when you left, and then when you came back in, in your adulthood, in your career? Were there differences? Was it the same or had you changed? No, actually, of course, I had changed a lot. I left in 1972 and came back in the end of 1990 yeah. uh, with Procter & Gamble. But the big difference that I felt was that when I had left in, in the early 1970s, there was not global media. There was not CNN that you could watch in Pakistan and so on. When I came back in 1990, uh, there was a huge impact of uh, people being able to have satellite television and be able to watch things from across the world, even though it was just the beginning stages of it. But all of a sudden, people were starting to see what other parts of the world looked like and how people in other parts of the world live. And it was both good and bad. I mean, good in the sense that their minds were being opened up and bad in the sense that people were starting to realize how many things that exist in other parts of the world do not exist in Pakistan, or at least not mm. readily available to them. Can you, can you give us an example of one of those things, those revelations to the people? We, people would, would, you know, talk about, uh, here's what automobiles in other places look like, mm. or here's the kind of homes people live in, or here are the educational opportunities that seemed to be available, or even in sports, for example, all of a sudden people could watch live coverage of Olympics. Mm. Also, you know, one other thing, I mean, Pakistan was, still is a very conservative Muslim country, mm -hmm. but all of a sudden people were seeing other people, men and women dressed differently. Mm. And while it wasn't like a total new thing for them, but all of a sudden every evening you turn on the television, and you see people who are dressed differently. And it was starting to open up the people's minds. And also, in some cases, starting to push people away from, you know, hey, I'm not sure that this is how I work. Yeah, for better or worse. Yes, right? exactly. For better or worse. That's it's, either appealing or how dare they. Exactly. Right? And it has impacted fashion. Now, when you, when I go back to Pakistan, this is yet another 30 years later. Uh, you know, these people are dressing in all different kind of ways that 30 years ago would have been considered not acceptable or odd or, or something like that. So it's, you know, people. Minds are opening up, and I think what it has done to the society, I'm specifically speaking to Pakistan, is that it's created greater polarization between people who are very religiously conservative and people who are just at the opposite end, a lot more, for lack of a better word, westernized and open to, to uh, Western ways of 
being and looking and dressing and so on. Yeah, it's, um, you know, a, a cliche that often gets talked about Asia, be it India, China, other parts of Southeast Asia or the subcontinent, like Pakistan, Bangladesh, is some of these countries experience in 20 years the kind of changes that the West saw in 100 years. And we're not talking about technology, but we're talking about shifts in societal norms, yes. things that we had 100 years to get used to. I think about the black and white shows I used to watch on Nick at Night mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, a married couple, their beds being separate or together, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. all the debate of how we portray those things played out over a hundred years. And so call it four generations. Mm -hmm. And because of the exposure, rapid exposure to information, be it CNN in the bar or the hotel lobby, now you're hearing things, right? Mm -hmm. Be it in Vietnam or Pakistan or India or, you know, uh, somewhere in China, the conversation has to happen that much faster. And so I do think that that polarization, this is my own theory, because you're not given enough time to think about it and discuss it. You have to have a knee-jerk reaction fast because it's coming at you so fast. Yep. And beyond uh, the social aspects, even technology, in 1991, cell phones started to become available in Pakistan. And five years later, everybody had a cell phone. Right. They, they jumped over telephone infrastructure. Exactly. I mean, because, you know, I mean, most people did not have a landline telephone or many people did not have a landline telephone, mm -hmm. which was impossible to get, would take forever. Infrastructure running the line, yeah. Exactly. And all of a sudden, people could just go out and buy a phone. Initially, very expensive. But very quickly, $20 Chinese-made smartphones were starting to become available. And everybody, like the cleaning lady who came to her house, she had a cell phone. And uh, she knew exactly how to make sure that she will get the lowest cost for calling somebody. Well, yeah, economies of scale and innovation and product. I mean, where there's a will and where there's a marketplace for double-digit growth, you know, <laughs> the companies are going to figure it out, whether it's shampoo or cell phones. Yeah. In fact, when I came back to the U.S. in 1998, cell phones were still seen as a luxury and nice to have in many places. And, and it was a lot more expensive to use it than it was to use it in Pakistan or even Singapore. And it took longer for it to be fully accepted here as it became, you know, we had all these contracts and this and that. And over there, people would just go and pay $2 and get $2 worth of balance on their phone. Where balance was used, I have $2 worth of balance so I can make 45 minutes worth of phone calls. And if I call in the middle of the night, I can do 65 minutes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and, and never mind the usage of text messaging around the world before it hit the United States. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, with, with WhatsApp now, everybody uses WhatsApp free international calling. So uh, people are connected to, you know, and a lot of families in Pakistan and I'm sure Trooper India are spread all across the world. And people are connected to each other at minimal or no cost like it has never been. Yeah. It's, it's something we uh, in the West, we tend to take for granted a lot. Because we've always had these things. So you and I have had the privilege of spending significant chunks of our work and life living in other strange and foreign lands. And I'm not just talking about Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. You know, I spent time in Austria and Singapore. For you, I would imagine places like Turkey or Ukraine, places that bear no semblance mm -hmm. to kind of what you grew up with, the norms you grew up with. Do, do any of those spots jump out? Any stories you can kind of tell from your time there? Yeah, you know, um, when I came from the U.S. back to Pakistan, of course, I was from there, culturally comfortable, language-wise and so on, even though I had lived there a long time. But when we moved to Ukraine in 1996, we were transferred to Ukraine. I moved there with my wife and two young children, nine and six years old, roughly at the time, and having no knowledge of Russia, Russian or Ukrainian. Russian was broadly spoken still in 1996 in Ukraine, even though Ukrainian was becoming more and more 
predominant language, but slowly so. We had one English-Russian phrase book, and that's all we had to be able to communicate with somebody. And we would go into the market and let's say buy fruits and vegetables, and we didn't know the numbers yet. We would just put all of our money on the table and let them pick whatever they thought was, and we have no idea whether they were taking the right amount or not. And that kind of went on for a couple of weeks for us like that. You were probably very popular at the marketplace. <laughs> you know, I mean, but the thing is, we, we didn't have the sense of being cheated, even though there's no way to know for sure. Uh, People uh, would yeah. smile and they would look at us and they would see us as a young family with young kids and they would just go through the money and they would pick whatever and they would kind of show it to yeah. us and say, I'm taking this many. So that was a very interesting and unique, different experience. Also Ukraine, which was still very much the post-Soviet years, everything looked different. I mean, you would go into a hotel and it looked different. You took for a restaurant and there weren't many or any that looked familiar, even though we gradually started to discover places were there and, and we would feel more comfortable, like a pizza place or a Lebanese place. But they were, they had names that you wouldn't recognize that, you know, like Odessa restaurant was a Lebanese restaurant in Ukraine, which we discovered somehow. But very interesting interactions with people and very interesting feeling that all of a sudden you cannot communicate. There was a Procter & Gamble driver who would pick us up in the PNG car and take us from here to there. And he spoke Russian, Ukrainian, and German. Okay. And I, knowing close to zero German, German was my main language of communicating with him because I'd spent a couple of summers hitchhiking through Germany and picked <laughs> up a few words here and there. Getting tickets from cops. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So this is how I communicated with him. At least I could, I could tell him, can you come back at this hour or wait here for 30 minutes? I'll, I'll be done with my meeting or whatever. So a very interesting experience of uh, the children uh, were going to American school, started to go to American schools. So there was not a language issue there, even though there was a school bus driver they had to communicate with. And there were kids from all over the world and that American school, but very interesting. And I tell you, mostly very, very positive memories, even though it was a little bit unnerving to not be able to communicate uh, with people initially. I have to ask one more question. And we have a whole episode where, you know, you, John Pepper, and I talk about Ukraine and Russia, but is there anything like this accidental happy discovery from your time in the culture in Ukraine, be it food, restaurants, TV shows, uh, that, that you and your family kind of still look fondly back on? You know, the, the best memories of Ukraine we have is our interactions with Ukrainian people outside of work. Mm -hmm. In the office, it was Procter & Gamble. Everybody was PNG, whether they were Ukrainian or, or, or not. Mm -hmm. And English was the spoken language. But, you know, just going into stores and, you know, like one example, uh, right outside of our apartment building, there was a very wide sidewalk and a lot of elderly ladies would be selling stuff like marinated vegetables and things that they had made. Mm -hmm. And this was the way that the economy was going. And one time my daughter came back from school and my wife would normally meet her there and she wasn't there. So my daughter just decided to walk around the block and come into my office, which was right immediately next door, which was another great thing. 90 seconds from my apartment to my desk, mm -hmm. <laughs> my best commute ever. And so when my wife finally came out, she saw that our daughter was not, Dina was not there. And these ladies, not knowing the language, somehow communicated to her that your daughter was here and she's just gone this way and into this next building. Yeah. You know, and it was just very, very friendly. It was unbelievable. Amazingly friendly experiences with all your everyday folk. Yeah. And that's our best memory of Ukraine. 
And in fact, eight years later, we went back to Ukraine for a vacation and really loved it. Went back to Kiev. Mm-hmm. They had become that much nicer. All the old buildings that were somewhat crumbling, many of them, most of them had been restored and looking beautiful and, and so on. That's great. All right. So we've both come from different places. We've lived in different places. But now I want to get into the really fun stuff where I think you and I kind of share a, a common bone. Uh, we've had the privilege and choice to spend a lot of not just our free time, but our money mm-hmm. <laughs> traveling this world of ours. I think per a spreadsheet exercise we did that your country count has mine beat, but just barely. And you've got a couple of decades on me. But I would love to know kind of like some of your highlights of all the places in the world that you visited. What are some of your top places and why? You know, places that are very familiar. I mean, places in Western Europe and so on, the beautiful countries, wonderful things and so on. But that's stuff that we have all done and everybody has done. <laughs> And when you go to Germany and you go to Holland or Belgium or Spain, even, you know, I mean, it all is kind of a developed Western. Well, and, and, and it's an access that we're familiar and comfortable with. It's great. Exactly, exactly. The unusual places that have been very interesting for me are a trip to Syria before the civil war broke out there. Yeah, yeah we were comparing notes on this. Yes, and uh, yeah, and you know, I think you and I discussed the other day and we may have been in Damascus at the same time and maybe staying at the same hotel perhaps. <laughs> which is quite a coincidence. Which is, uh, for our listeners, that's like two decades before Castor and I ever knew of each other. Yes, yes. So, you know, Syria was one, Damascus, and then all the wonderful historical places within a day's drive of Damascus, you know, the Krag de Chevalier and uh, uh, Holmes and Osra is a town in the south of Damascus, which is ancient Roman town, very well preserved. So that's another wonderful memory. Uzbekistan has been very interesting for me. Again, PNG friend of mine, Mark Sikon, he and I went to Uzbekistan and we went to, you know, you start at Tashkent and then we went to Samarkand, Bukhara and Khiva. Khiva is another ancient city. I don't know how many centuries or very nicely preserved or at least nicely restored. Very, very interesting. You live in this war city. The hotel was at that where we stayed was actually a 15th century school that had now been converted into a bread and breakfast of sorts. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting place. My driving trip across Afghanistan, which is many, many decades earlier, was very interesting memories. And you know, the the sad part is many places that we have visited and really enjoyed visiting are no longer accessible. I mean, Afghanistan, of course, one of them. Iran is another one. And Syria is is another one. Uzbekistan, thankfully, is is fine. Mm -hmm. Turkey, I spent four years going to college in Turkey. And frankly, on a shoestring budget, what can you even call it that, uh, didn't get to see a lot of what the country has to offer. I've visited many, many times since then, but always on a very short sort of schedule. So I've been to Istanbul mm-hmm. and maybe out of Istanbul a little bit. I'd love to go back for a month or so. Also Andalusia and Spain, Southern Spain, mm-hmm. very interesting. A lot of ancient old Moorish history has had a lot of interest for me, but Beautiful places, Seville, Cordova, Granada, mm-hmm. all of these places. Very, very interesting. Well, so, so I, I sense a common theme of, you know, wanting to see kind of the ancient world preserved. And there's pockets of the world where it is. But oftentimes I get asked the question, you know, why did you go there? And then you list off the ruins and the thing that you might not have heard of. But the question I often get, and we were comparing notes about this when we discovered we both had a love of Syria, you know, pre-Civil War, is 
how did you do that? Where did you get the idea to go? And, Mm -hmm. you know, for me, it was my old grad school roommate was working in Dubai and so was traveling the region and giving me some pro tips on places to go off the beaten path. I believe your daughter had been to Syria. Like, where does the inspiration to go to Uzbekistan, you know, or to drive across Afghanistan come from? Because it doesn't occur to most people. There's there's easy places like Machu Picchu that you can go to. Well, you know, uh, if you have friends who share common interests with you, in discussions, these kinds of things come up. I mean, again, my friend Mark, XPNG, he kept bringing up this ancient Silk Road. And he said, you know, I, I want to travel parts of the Silk Road and so on. And at that point, we've all heard of the Silk Road, but where exactly is it? And what is it? Mm-hmm. Or maybe we know what is it, but you don't really know because it had many tentacles and so on. And after discussing this back and forth, we finally settled on, you know, Uzbekistan was a big part of it. Samarkand and Bukhara, we didn't know about Kiva at the time. Uh, have been very important stops along the ancient Silk Road. So this is how the discussion started. And then once we started to chat about it, gathered a group of five of us to just go there. And and we found a travel agency with, honestly, for, for six days of travel, hotels, not meals, hotels, and all the transport and so on, we paid 600 bucks, you know? Yeah. Uh, in, in, <laughs> you uh, can do that in Uzbekistan. You can't do that in... Uh, yes. You can't do that in Denmark. And, and the other thing is, there are two ways to do these kinds of countries. They, they talked to us and they said, do you want to stay in the Marriott and the Sheraton's or do you want us to arrange for nice, clean, boutique local hotels? And we said, this is a no-brainer. Yeah, you know, Nice, course, clean, boutique local hotels we, where we will experience a lot more of the culture. We may not have some of the amenities but uh, that's what, what we're looking for. You know, we can get to the amenities whenever we want. And as a result, you know, places cost like 30 bucks a night or 40 bucks a night or less. And it was just wonderful. This is how we got to Kaya, Uzbekistan. Same way, uh, we traveled to Oman and a and, uh, few other places, you know. But recently, I went over to Egypt. You alluded to that early on. Again, very nice, local, low-cost way of doing it. Not so much to save money, but really to be closer to the local culture. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of to increase the ROI on the trip, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Why travel if you're just traveling to go to the Marriott in the McDonald's? And to be fair, if I need a clean bathroom, I will go to the Marriott. <laughs> if, <laughs> I, if I need a break from all the crazy Chinese food my in-laws are making me eat in Hong Kong, I will find the Australian burger joint for an afternoon of French fries. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I want to actually ask another question, like a, a, another trick that my wife and I did pr- prior to having kids and kind of, cutting back on our travel a little is we'd fly into one city and out of the other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'd pre-buy those flights. You know, that's the first trip, like figure out the time. But now you have to maximize your trip to get from point A to point B. Do you do that or typically go in and out of the same place? You know, I have typically gone in and out of the same place because that was the most convenient way to do it. Mm -hmm. But, But we have looked at all different ways of doing it. For example, when we went to Uzbekistan, I wrote to this this travel agency and I said, okay, we want to we fly into Tashkent because that's where the international flights came in, but we want to visit Samarkand, Bukhara, and Kiva. Mm-hmm. And I asked them, I said, how long does it take to drive to Bukhara? I asked her, I think, by email. <laughs> and she said, about five hours. And then she said, this is in 2014. She said, why do you want to drive there? <laughs> and I said, how else? And she said, High-speed train takes two and a half hours. Driving takes five hours. Why wouldn't you just take the train? And you know, it was not in my mind that 
high-speed train of the kind that... You, you, want, to, you want the trip to go slower, right? No, no, no not just that. That high-speed train of the kind that existed seven years or nine years ago in Uzbekistan doesn't exist in the U.S. You know, there's not a high-speed <laughs> train like that here. Yeah, so right. I, I didn't even think of it. I thought train is just the slow kind of rickety way of travel. Yeah. And, you know, we took this wonderful train from Tashkent to Bukhara and then from there to Samarkand. And then I think we flew back just to save our time. Yeah. Kiva was a little bit further away, so we took like a 45-minute flight to Kiva and then flight. But, you know, it's interesting when you work with local people, you get a lot of insights. Like you talked about clean bathrooms in a hotel. They will tell you, here is a local boutique hotel that's neat and clean. Yep. As opposed to us just kind of bumping into something and, and taking a chance, whether it will have or not clean bed sheets and bathrooms. Yeah, you definitely have. But you also have to, I hate to say it, lower your tolerance for those things, for the adventure. Of course. And if you, and if you cannot, then, you know, go to Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Visit friends. So, so we... we First of all, I'm taking notes about Uzbekistan because now it's it's made my list. <laughs> We've talked a lot about popping in and out of cities because it really isn't just about countries, right? Like mm -hmm. my experience in the world, most countries have two, maybe three types of cities. The, the one that has the Marriott and the international airport that you can get in and out of easily, right? And then the other ones that maybe only has local flights or really speaks to the culture of the country. Uh, the example I love to use for people is you know, the difference between Toronto and Montreal or Sydney and Melbourne, right? Between Delhi and Mumbai. But as we talk about cities, because it's really as you're visiting cities, the cities are, and the towns are where the culture is. It's it's not about the international airport that represents the country. Sure. What, what have been some of your favorite cities that you're visiting? Can you, can you share some stories from those? You know, I already mentioned Damascus. We could do a whole podcast episode yes. on Damascus, yes. by the way. Uh, these cities in Uzbekistan, of course. I really love traveling in south of Spain, mm. uh, Seville, Cordoba, yeah. Granada. Yeah. For various different reasons, they were all very, very interesting to me. Also, now I'm just remembering right before we retired from PNG and I concluded our, our stay in Pakistan, we went to Sri Lanka. Mm. About an hour, maybe an hour and a half drive south of Colombo is a town called Gaul, G-A-L-L-E. And that used to be a place where the Portuguese, it was under Portuguese rule way back when, and there's a fort there. And the whole feel of that historical kind of fort and city, and they're inside the fortified sort of remains of the city are these tiny little restaurants and cafes and so on. Really beautiful. Beautiful in a very different way. Not beautiful as in Western Europe, but when you start to think about the history of the place and, and how it has evolved and, and how it's now functioning as a regular city in the in the modern country of Sri Lanka. It was very interesting. Well, with these these forts, these castles are built into the landscape, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you have to, we need to put a restaurant somewhere. Might as well put it. Or we need to put a bed and breakfast in this old school, as you were mentioning earlier. Um, why, what else are you going to do with this building, right? Also, you know, a lot of small towns, and, and I have not been there in 30, 40 years, maybe, along the coast of, uh, southern coast of Turkey. Mm. I mean, everybody goes to Antalya and then there are these little towns called Alanya and Side and Aspendos and so on, where there are all these old ancient Roman and Greek theaters and so on. And again, like I said, I, last time I was there was probably in 1975. So this is ancient history I'm recounting here, but it was very, very interesting. Just the antiquities that existed in these places, really excellent. Yeah. Something we were talking about earlier is, and this is a very popular place, but Dubai, mm -hmm. you told me earlier that 
the reason you like Dubai is for a very different reason mm-hmm. than, than most people. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I started to go back and forth to Dubai when I was based in Karachi, okay? And Karachi has a lot of infrastructure, traffic, et cetera, et cetera, challenges there. You have electricity and you don't, and your backup generator is working where it's not, and it's been running for 12 hours. Now you need to give it a rest for two hours. So, so all those kinds of things happen in Karachi all the time. And Dubai was a two-hour flight. Also was the regional headquarters of PNG, where my boss was based, Al Rajwani. So I would have to go to Dubai once a month or so anyhow. I ended up getting an apartment there. And so I had my own place in Dubai. So every so often I'd just go and spend two or three, four days, mini vacation, getting away from all the turmoil of, you know, Karachi, which was sometimes, you know, I mean, again, it wasn't new to me and I knew what to expect and so on, but it would just give me a break. We're going to a place where everything worked, you know, you go into your apartment, you click on the button and the air conditioning comes on and so on, you know? So I think that I really like, but, you know, it's very nice for me to see, and many people take objection to this, to have a brand new country come up and it's being developed with all the civic standards that you would want to have in place. Traffic works. If you violate the traffic, you will get a ticket. If you violate again, you're going to lose your driver's license. As a result, traffic is good. You know, all the utility systems work. Roads, highways, everything is, you know, and it was all still under construction, under development. I spent most of my time in Dubai between 2006 and early 2011. So those were four or five years where a lot of what we see at Dubai now was, was just coming up. And the pace at which the city has developed without cutting corners really is very impressive to me. I think something else that I found interesting about Dubai, it was, you know, on the tail end of my Syria trip and the said grad school roommate was living there. So invited us to come hang with him and a handful of other expats and actually met up with a couple of ex or extra current PNGers while I was there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's certain parts of the world that, that are developed, that developed on a very different cultural axis. So obviously mm-hmm. the West, Western Europe, North America being US and Canada, has developed a certain set of cultural norms to how we develop a society, churches, roads, schools, mm-hmm. how you hail a taxi, all of these things. And my first experience of kind of seeing the developed world on a different axis was my my first trip to Tokyo. And I, I've been back to Japan multiple times in career and life. And to kind of see a developed world that developed along an Asian cultural sense of sensibilities, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of what struck me about Dubai, also Singapore as well, but from Asia, but Dubai for the Middle East, right? Yeah. There are many other highly developed cities and nations in the Middle East. You know, you could argue, you know, Beirut, Tel Aviv, even Damascus for a time. Mm-hmm. But Dubai just kind of represented this kind of, maybe not pinnacle, but like, here's the end state of, of what the modern urban uh, Muslim cultural norm could be. And, and I always found that really interesting about that, similar to Tokyo and Asia, et cetera. Yeah, well, you know, one other thing about Dubai, uh, along the lines of what you're saying, is it's a place where people from all cultures are accepted, yeah. feel yeah. comfortable, can go about their life, you know, within reason of how they would want to lead their life. Uh, unfortunately, that, that cannot be said for many places in the Middle East. Uh, but Dubai is really set in example. And many people don't like that, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. hey, they're too westernized or they're too permissive, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's a place where people, uh, expats from all parts of the world are living there, working there, contributing to the economy, having their own. Well, and getting to know each other, hopefully, too. And, and getting to know each other as well. Yes, of course. So that, that way also, it's very, very uh, wonderful. And I, I hear 
that Beirut used to be like that at one time. And obviously Beirut has other problems now. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I want to, speaking of problems, uh, something that's really kind of been the opposite of near and dear to my heart is not being able to travel and kind of unpacking what that means for each of us. Like, obviously, you know, we've had the pandemic and travel's picking back up, but, you know, I'm in a stage of life where I have young kids. <laughs> no, thank you. You know, it's like a, a trip to Atlanta with my two young children is longer than a solo trip to Australia for me. But and then at the same time, you know, my wife and I resisted having pets before we had kids because that meant we could go wherever we wanted to. We didn't have to deal with it. You know, that's why we resist letting our young kids have a pet, because the minute they're old enough to remember, we want to be back on the road with them. It's, it's been a weird few years, not just because of the pandemic, but young kids for me. What does not being able to travel mean to you? You know, I mean, we got a dose of that during the pandemic, right? And I have really sort of said to myself that I want to travel as much as I can and do trips with, with friends and separate trips with family because they don't intersect very well somehow. <laughs> so uh, when we couldn't do this at all, I uh, we finally, in early 2022, I was teaching at George Washington University and I was just so itching to go somewhere, anywhere, you know, just to get out. In the spring break, I had like a 10, 11 day window where I could be away. And we went to Dubai. And then from, because they were having a world's fair, which was written up and so on. And from there, we went to uh, literally 48 hours to Karachi to meet with a few friends and came back. Then I realized that this trip was so rushed and so had to fit into this schedule, tight schedule that I had. And I said, no, I didn't retire <laughs> in order to have my time spoken for by others. So this year, I regretted to GW and said, no, I won't be able to because I don't want to not be able to travel for 15 weeks even though there are many 15-week periods when I don't travel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But at least, you know, in my mind, I, I'm free to do that if I want to. But it was tough, you know. And you could see, I mean, the whole, the term revenge travel came around because so many people yeah. were just traveling because they could. Yeah, you know, I've advice to any American listening to this is like, uh, go ahead and renew your passport now because it's going to take two years. The demand is so high on the State Department. Yes. You know, I think about the, the value of time versus money a lot. Um, right when I finished business school, you know, I got to set my start date with Procter & Gamble. And there were all sorts of incentives for starting in July. But I'm looking down the barrel of a career, mm -hmm. right, that's about to kick off. You know, I had this unique opportunity to go back to India with my dad for the you know, first time for me in like almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so I pushed back my start date as far as possible. And to this day, my dad still tells me that was the right decision because... I mean, beyond that being, you know, one of my favorite trips that I've taken in all the places that I've been, it's, you don't know when you're going to get to go again, you know, or you don't know how you're going to have time to go to these places. Syria, both you and I, had we listened to the advice of other family and friends to say not to go, we might have never had the chance. I still regret not ever having been to Russia. And I, I wonder, you know, mm -hmm. will I have that chance? But do it while you can, you know, do it while you can. And also, you know, the word on the street sometimes, when I came back from Syria, people asked me, oh, I didn't realize you were allowed to go. Yeah. And I'm like, allowed by who? Yeah. You know? And the same thing is true now for Iran. I mean, it's another country, Iran and India are two places I really, really want to go. And for different reasons, I'm not able to. But people say, I, again, I, as of this moment right now, I'm not sure if legally, as an American citizen, I can or cannot go to Iran. I don't, do not know that. It could create other complications, but is it strictly forbidden legally or not? I'm not sure. But that is what most people would think that you cannot go. Yeah, I, I think the 
what I always tell people is just go check on the State Department website and then treat it like mm-hmm. treat it like your internal counsel. <laughs> how, how what level of severity and risk? It's a trade off on risk. We're not saying to cross a demilitarized zone, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I want to unpack that just for for our audience because this is a very interesting one that most people don't realize. Can you explain? And you know, I'm happy to kind of give the other point of view, but like, why can Kasser Sharif not go to India? Because you're American. There's a lot of, uh, I don't think people truly understand that. Yeah, it's kind of a complicated, unfortunate story, but I was born in India. You know, and then my family had moved to Pakistan. I was a Pakistani citizen until I was, mm-hmm. I don't know, in my mid-20s or so. And then I became an American citizen. Okay, my passport says, U.S. passport, American passport says, place of birth, India. Mm-hmm. Okay, but... My passport had so many stamps from Pakistan, not because I'm from there, but because Procter & Gamble sent me there. Yeah. Uh, that when I submitted my passport for, for Indian visa, they said, well, you're born in India, you're an American citizen, but you got too many Pakistani connections. Mm-hmm. So we need to get some kind of clearance for some department in India, that, which they never defined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I had been invited to go to Mumbai. I'd been to Mumbai many times uh, as part of PNG work mm-hmm. back in the early 90s. But things had changed, relationships had somehow deteriorated. And so uh, PNG was inviting me to come for a meeting and the embassy in Pakistan where I submitted my passport said, I, you need security clearance from some department. And the PNG folks were asking me, you know, where is the security clearance going to come from? Mm-hmm. Let us know and maybe we can put in, you know, some kind of application on your behalf or whatever. And they would never tell me. So ultimately, after waiting for a long time, and the meeting that I was supposed to go and attend, the meeting date came and went. And in fact, the Indian embassy told us, just ask them to change the meeting date because you can't get your visa in time. So yeah. that was sort of it, you know, and that's true. I had a very hard time bringing PNG people from the U.S. into Pakistan who were of Indian heritage. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so a team was coming. There was a, there was a pilot R&D test that was being done there for some kind of laundry product. And they gave a visa to everybody except for the one engineer who was like the leader of the team. Mm-hmm. And the gentleman was of Indian heritage. And I had to call the intern interior ministry and listen. But in the end, they did not issue the visa. They did say no. They just said, oh, we will. We're looking into it. Yeah. And, you know, they know that the time for the meeting will come and go. And it would no longer be needed. So unfortunately, these relationship things between countries can really get in the way. It seems true for Iran right now, for example, as a U.S. citizen going to Iran. And you always hear about the worst stories sure. that some American was caught and interrogated and so on and so forth. I'm sure those stories are true, sure, but maybe that's one out of the 20,000 that may have gone there. Yeah. And the sad thing is it keeps people from knowing each other. The two countries where, believe it or not, the people have a lot more in common than they do a difference. Like, mm-hmm. So my father was born in Lahore in what is now Pakistan, but when it was India, yeah. the whole partition. But yeah. You know, he desperately wants to go back and it's not an easy thing, even he's an American citizen. Mm -hmm. But then Mm -hmm. at the same time, I have an easier ability to go Mm -hmm. because I'm very American. But it's it's striking, you know, at the same time I'm of Indian origin. And it's strange, you know, as I think about the places I want to go and the places I want to see and you hope the relations thaw or Mm -hmm. be at the paranoia between the two countries. And it's not just those two countries. You can name any two around the world. No, there are several. Yeah. Several examples around the world, of course, yeah. So uh, to kind of make it a little bit lighter, Mm -hmm. what is the perfect amount travel? Like when you go on a trip, are you Mm -hmm. leaving everything behind for a six-month sabbatical? Are you going for a short weekend in and out of Portugal? 
how are you traveling, Kasser? Yeah, the, the trips now that I have started to enjoy the most with all the restrictions and so on, I mean, even at my age, you know, you don't want to be away for so long, is like a weekend to weekend, eight to 10 days yeah. has worked really well. You know, I went on a, a trip, actually last year, went to Portugal twice, once with a friend mm. and then once with my wife. Two separate trips, three months apart. And uh, went to Lisbon, stayed there for like three days, went to Porto, spent three days there, came back to Lisbon. So in total with all the travel, nine or eight or nine, 10 days, uh, same thing with my trip to Egypt. I think this was the perfect duration. Egypt, we could have probably used a couple more days, but some of my fellow travelers had other restrictions and needed. Mm. So I think that's the kind of trip I want to do, except I want to go to Turkey for three to four weeks mm. because I have lived there. I have so many memories and so many things that people come from Turkey and tell me that, oh, you lived there, you know, you must have seen this, you must have seen that. And I have to tell them, no, I haven't seen them because I was a student with no money. And then since then, I haven't had the time. So that's other than that, I'd like to go for eight, nine, 10 days to a place and hit two or three cities. Yeah, you know, I go back and forth between the idea of, you know, wanting to leave a country or leave a trip where you still wish you had unfinished business, you know, a few days left. But on the contrast, do you want to be in a country where you're kind of tired on those last couple of days and you're wishing you had already left? And it kind of does a disservice to the mm -hmm. unique texture each place has to offer. You know, one of my, my favorite things on a trip is the first Monday that I'm in another country because... You fly out mm -hmm. on a Friday or a Saturday, but you're not officially skipping work until Monday. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and you definitely need the right amount of time to forget about your day job, to get let time slow down and get immersed in the new routine of trying to figure out what to eat, how to get around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so what are the kinds of things you like to do when you are traveling, when you go to a place? Um, I, I would guess both of us nerd out a little and like do a store check. <laughs> I, I, I don't do that anymore. It took me 10 years to get that out of my system. But uh, I am out of that system. I, you know, no, you know what, Kasser? I think our store checks are different because I'm not looking for the, the laundry detergent. I'm genuinely, I think it, it's kind of like just watching commercials in another country, like how people grocery shop and what kind of junk food do they have and how do they cut their yeah. meat or their cheese? Mm -hmm. You know, for me, one of the uh, most interesting things is just experiencing the food. Yeah. And I, I try to go where the locals are going. If I walk into a restaurant and 80% of it are tourists, I'd probably turn right around and, and, and not eat there. You know, there's a, there's a place, uh, there's a huge, huge food hall in uh, Lisbon called Time Out Lisbon, I think it's called. Mm. And you go in there and even though it's hard to tell the locals from the tourists, but you can kind of just from their demeanor, it was packed with, with tourists. And I said, okay, this is not a place where we want to eat. And just go into some little side streets and see if there's a tiny little hole-in-the-wall restaurant. Some of them can be very nice in Europe, particularly nice hole-in-the-wall restaurants where I remember in Lisbon, the gentleman brought this uh, big piece of cheese and he said, this cheese is from this and this village near Lisbon. You know, uh, yeah. you're not going to find it in any supermarket. Yeah. Things like that are, are really interesting. And then, of course, there's always half a dozen interesting historical things. There's a a museum in Lisbon that I just discovered through a tour book. It's called Kalust Gulbenkian Museum. And it has one of the largest private collections of Western art, like Rembrandt and Matisse and things like that, as well as one of the largest gallery of, of Islamic art. And it was very interesting. I just discovered it. This is a gentleman who uh, I think of Armenian heritage, I, I'm guessing from the name, who Grew up in Turkey, grew up in Istanbul in the 1940s, emigrated to 
to Lisbon, took 7,000 pieces of art from his private collection and set up this huge museum. So just discovering some things like that. And I, I, it's a well-known site, beautiful, large campus of a museum, which has got several large buildings. But just walking through there and, and seeing some beautiful European masterpieces, originals um, in a place in Lisbon that I didn't expect. So those kinds of things. And I'm sure there's lots of things that are in the top 10 of Lisbon that I never got to because it didn't interest me. Yeah, it's about figuring out what your interests are in the place or the thing you're interested in. How does that intersect with the culture versus kind of the top 10 right. list? Exactly. And also you have to enjoy the trip. I mean, if you are constantly running and, you know, you got to do these 15 things, yeah. you know, then what's the point? I mean, you, know, I, I mean, you, can, you can pick up a book and look those things up. Uh, if if it was important to find out about them, you know, but you have to enjoy the trip, which is why I take trips with my friends and separately I take trips with my wife. And those are very different kinds of trips. <laughs> and and the number of amount of activity and the kind of activity is very different. And I concluded some years ago that I should not try and combine these two because it'll be a disaster for my friends. It'll be a disaster for <laughs> my wife. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I was going to ask uh, and give you an out about that question. Who are your favorite people to travel with? Because I, I love traveling with my wife and I cannot wait for mm -hmm. the moment to travel the world with my children and see it through their eyes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my wife and I have different sensibilities and I, I have two very close friends, both of whom are kind of the people I convinced to go to Syria or mm -hmm. uh, the Middle East or Antarctica or get on, on a boat with our favorite band, right, to listen to for five days straight. It's, it's a very different vibe based on who you go yeah. with. It's a different kind of trip. You know, I mean, both of them are wonderful. Like I went to Morocco with my friends and then separately did the same trip with my wife. And they were both wonderful trips, but in very different ways. Right. What are some of your favorite places in this world that you've been that you want to go back to? Oh, you know, there would be among the list of things that we have been really talking about. But yeah, going back to, I mean, I've Talked about you know, Turkey, but lots of places in Spain that I really enjoy. Portugal is, again, you know, an interesting place uh, that I would. And, you know, it's a very, you can have a very relaxed trip to Portugal. There's nothing that you have, I am speaking for myself, have to do. But it's a very, it's kind of a very relaxing place. People are very friendly, used to having tourists from all over. Uh, there are coffee shops everywhere in Lisbon. So that's a very sort of a chill trip one can have. I'd love to go back to Andalusia, southern Spain, and they were, we went there once and didn't plan enough time in some of the towns that we should have. So would love to do that. A place that I have not been to, would love to go is Bosnia. Mm -hmm. I've met some friends who are from there and obviously a very tough and sad history from the civil war there, but, and you know, and things aren't totally resolved at this time, but still it's a place one can visit and, and I would love to go there. Another place I've never been to, a whole, all of Scandinavia. Mm. I just wonder how different it's going to be from Germany. Oh, man. <laughs> Those are fighting words for some of our uh, Northern European audience. But yes, uh, there, there's, a, there's an itinerary I can give you that my wife and I did. That's fantastic. Okay, would love to do that. And I obviously uh, definitely want to go there. And when I say how different would it be, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, here's Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, yeah. Syria, yeah. Dubai, and on that scale of things. <laughs> Once somebody asked me, which is better, Istanbul or Dubai? And I looked at the and I said, how do you even begin to answer that question? Apples and oranges. It's like saying, yeah. which planet is better, Venus or Mars or Jupiter? You know what I mean? And I, in the end, I just said to her that 
Dubai is everything, Istanbul is not, and vice versa. You know, so it depends <laughs> on what you are looking for. I, I have to ask this question, you know, as someone who's getting ready to take my kids out into the world, they're a little bit younger. And again, my, my critique is there's going to be two phases, right? The first trips that they're going to actually be able to remember, right, and make an impact on them. But then, you know, they're going to get older. If it was easy, infinite resources, uh, I know you're now a grandfather. Let's say the grandkids get to stay home. What are some places that you want to take your kids? Maybe places you've been that they've not been or somewhere new. You know, there are a lot of places like that. In fact, there are many places we have taken our kids uh, when they were very young. And now they complain and say, why did you take me there when I was so young and I couldn't really enjoy the place? <laughs> so I think now our grandkids are really, really young, under two yeah. years old and mostly relatively newborn. But we would want to now do some vacation that includes everybody, including the grandkids. And they will not be places where you walk 20,000 steps in a day, but <laughs> which I have done quite a bit. But, you know, we're starting to think about places that are more of a drivable distance, you know, go to some place in Virginia and, and <laughs> rent out. Uh, Can I recommend Cape Cod or Albany, New York? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> of course. So those kinds of things. And really, I think being a grandparent is a new experience for us. I think in a few years, we may have a better sense of what kind of travel that includes everybody. But we do want to spend time with everybody. We don't want to take trips with our kids, children and leave our grandkids behind that they cannot be a That was of. such a politically safe answer, Caster. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I honestly mean it. But, but truthful, truthful, I, I believe it. I honestly mean it, yeah. I honestly mean it, really. Because we're really enjoying the grandkids a lot and want to maximize our time with them. The kids can kind of fend for themselves. <laughs> I think the kids are going to leave the grandkids with you and then go to their place, so. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> So, Kasser, I uh, this has been wonderful, and I think we could easily spend another hour, but I know we've got to wrap up soon. So I wanted to ask a few fun questions with some quick answers. Mm -hmm. and, and we've kind of covered some of this, but maybe, maybe this is our, our chance to add a few surprises. What's one place that you've been that people are just really surprised by? I mean, Uzbekistan is one. Even Syria yeah, is, yeah. is another one. For example, Peru and people ask me, and you know, I did a lot of travel for uh, my work with PNG. So I was there, not because, you know, I was in Lima probably for 48 hours, but there are places like that when I tell people, they're like, oh, oh, why? Why did you go there? But uh, so some of it was work, but these are the places that many people have not been to, uh, even Afghanistan. And I was there well before, you know, the place blew up, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, people are surprised by these places, I think, you know. Right. Because they're off the beaten path, for sure, for Western travelers. As, as we think about the media, you know, books, magazines, and film, are there any stories about travel? It doesn't have to be about travel, but about uh, another place that you particularly enjoyed? You know what? I don't know that I've read in any books or travel-related, unless it was for a country that I was planning to visit. And any films or TV shows uh, about traveling the world that you've enjoyed? Hmm, I have to think about that. I mean, there are uh, really a lot, a lot of these shows which were about Italy, for example, on CNN, mm. searching for Italy. And then also, what was his name? I'm forgetting. Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. I mean, I used to watch all of his shows as much as I could. And now they, are, they were available on streaming app, but I don't know what's happening with CNN streaming anymore. But every single one of them, you know, he reported from Vietnam. Very, very interesting. The, the infamous beer with Obama, you know? Yes, exactly. I was going to say the beer with Obama. 
So, I mean, that, and he, he went to a few places in Africa, which were interesting, some less so some than others. Uh, but a lot of his travels, I mean, were really, really excellent. And, and he had a, a special knack for connecting with the local culture, not putting anything down, but bringing out, you know, what was most interesting. Uh, he had a train trip across Myanmar, a country I've never been to. Very, very interesting. Uh, so all of that was really, really fun to watch, but also uh, just very satisfying to just kind of visit a place with him that you haven't been to, may never be able to go. Yeah, the the lens through which uh, Anthony Bourdain saw the world, it's just such a loss to not have him doing that anymore. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, he had a way, I mean, people sometimes will travel to a place and then they will just say, oh my God, you know, it was terrible, too hard, too cold, not clean enough, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Anthony Bourdain didn't have any of those hangups. He went to a place, he, uh, obviously he connected with the culture through their cuisine, but then, presented a lot more than the cuisine mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was made it very interesting and very engaging to to watch and you learned a lot about these these places yeah i mean beyond his his shows i think two of the best conversations i've seen him had and i've i've read multiple interviews with him upon his passing but uh, and there's a really good documentary about his life but mm. obviously his conversation with obama in vietnam is one of them yeah. but even uh, he was on free when he came over to cnn uh, he did an interview on Fareed Zakaria's show, which is quite wonderful. And again, that was close to that, but towards the end of his, right? Yeah, or, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got to ask, of all the places you've been, what's one of your favorite things that you have eaten while traveling? You know, that's that's a tough one. I'm not a foodie and, uh, you know, I, I, I try uh, new things and so on, but... Oh, I'll, I'll give you an easy... I'll give you some inspiration mm-hmm. for one. And this is a silly answer, but... Yeah. Uh, you know, my mom's family was in the UK as a little kid. Mm-hmm. So I discovered uh, a candy bar called the Cadbury Flake, which I will argue, other than the Nestle Lion Bar, is one of the greatest candies ever made in this world. Mm-hmm. However, it wasn't until a subsequent trip to Australia on a hot summer day that I discovered they pour soft serve ice cream and jam a Cadbury Flake, this flaky piece of milk chocolate, uh-huh. inside of the ice cream bar. Oh, okay. So of all, the, of all the Middle Eastern and African cuisines that I've had, the Cadbury Flake in an ice cream bar is by far my favorite in the world. <laughs> and you know, some of the, as, I, as you were saying that, I was just thinking some of the very interesting food experiences I've had were in Pakistan. Uh, working for PNG, I used to travel to a lot of small towns, even villages and so on. And uh, I remember going to some places where they were just making, you know, sort of a, a stir-fried mm-hmm. beef or stir-fried lamb or chicken. They call it chicken karahi or lamb karahi. And it's just, you know, literally we were sitting next to the uh, grill where he was making this and there was a clay <laughs> oven right there and bread was being baked right there. And he would literally toss the bread out of the oven and it would fall on our table and steaming still, you know. And, and so those those have been very interesting. But of course, that's a cuisine that I am so familiar with and, and connected with. But those have been interesting. And, and, you know, these are, I remember going to a place where there were seven of us, PNG folks, you know, my boss, Al Rajwani, several other visitors from from Dubai, from Cairo, and so on, visiting for a PNG meeting. And we're walking through a bazaar, doing store checks in your standard store checks. And there was a place where they were baking bread and you could just smell this fresh baked bread. Then we said, okay, we want a few of these. They say, if you buy the bread, the uh, curry comes free with it, completely <laughs> or not. So they gave us two little bowls of uh, just vegetable curry, not no meat. 
and we ate it with all of that. And it cost, for seven of us, it cost a dollar chip, okay, for seven of us. And then from there, we moved into our five-star hotel and went to this Thai restaurant and paid like $150 for yeah, seven people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's just... Uh, it's funny you mentioned the curry. Uh, when I worked in the PNG Singapore office, you know, there was a nice food court and there are plenty of fantastic places to go for lunch, including, you know, um, some temples that would serve kind of cafeteria style lunches. But my favorite thing was it wasn't in the main food court. It was like a little deli that I had to literally exit the building and come around the back entrance to go into. And it was like for $2 Singapore, I could get uh, a soda. So a canned soda, mm-hmm. um, which is where obviously all the margin was. Actually, no, not all the margin. That was probably the most expensive thing. Mm-hmm. And it was a leg of chicken in curry with, it's called roti prata, right? And so not like Indian roti that I know, mm-hmm. but it's a very Malaysian dish. But mm-hmm. for $2, like yeah. just this giant jug of curry, a leg of chicken and a Coke with a delicious piece of bread. <laughs> so, and when I try to get that in Soho for lunch, it's an appetizer from the Malaysian restaurant for $15. So, mm-hmm. so Kasser, I guess... Since travel is sometimes looped in with vacations, what's one thing that you like to do to relax when you're traveling? You know, just walking down the street of a nice little town, which has a lot of eateries and, and coffee shops and so on, and just being in and out of stores and so on. That, that kind of thing has been really interesting. We've done that in Morocco in their soup, and we've done that in Lisbon uh, in a very different way. But that's what we found. And, uh, and this is, again, when my wife and I are vacationing together. Right? These are the relaxed things to do. And then each place we visit, there are two or three things that we want to go and see there. And there might be a dozen more, but we just pick here the two or three things we absolutely have to see. And we try to make sure we hit those and do it at a leisurely pace. The other thing we enjoyed uh, starting to do that more recently is taking these hop-on, hop-off buses. They're often double-decker buses. And we'll do a whole tour of an area or a city or a region has turned out to be much more interesting. We'd always avoided that, uh, but it has turned out to be a lot more interesting. Well, it's a fast way to get the lay of the land too and kind of make your plan. Right. Exactly. And I would do that early on in the, in your stay so you can get a sense of what on is out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, a, a lot of these cities are like walking cities. So there's only so much walking you can do in it. Yeah, absolutely. To see. See I think one thing I would I, I like to do sometimes in another city, <laughs> I get into trouble for this, is if I'm in a museum and I see a tour group, I just kind of bolt on to the back of the group so I can hear the speaker and hear what they're saying. And I often get mm-hmm. yelled at by the tour leader. <laughs> I was like, why are you here? I, was, I can listen to all the facts that you are spouting on. You know, on that, I can give you a very quick tidbit. Mark Sikon, my friend and I, we were driving in Istanbul and we looked to the right and there was this old church, sure. which was not in great shape. Yeah. And we asked the driver, what is it? And he said, I don't know. And he swerved and he took us there. And outside of the church, there were some, some tables and there were some plans, like architectural plans and a bunch of people hunkered over it. And what we discovered was that a UNESCO team was visiting and there was a professor from Istanbul University who was giving them a talk about what needs to be done to restore this ancient church. And so we just kind of latched onto this group and listened to their whole presentation. <laughs> And did a walk through through the church, Mark and I, <laughs> listening to this UNESCO this presentation being made to the UNESCO folks who were visiting. Nobody looked at us. Nobody questioned us. Nobody said, "Who are you? Why are you listening to our presentation?" So that was kind of a fun thing. 
that we have done, learned a lot about that one particular church. I think it was called Zerek, Z-E-Y-R-E-K. And this was 20 years That's ago amazing. or something. So I don't know whether it got restored or not. Basically, uh, don't be afraid to sneak in. What's the worst they're going to do? Right, exactly. I mean, they could have asked us to hey, leave, you know, I mean, and as we found out where they were hunkered around these plans, that was like a little tea garden-like place. So we could have just acted like uh, we are just here to get a couple of people. Fantastic. But we, we ended up uh, following them through the entire tour, through the church, all the presentations they were making about where the structural damage was and where other things needed to be repaired and so on. And we listened to all of it. That's amazing. Well, Kasser, with, uh, with only a couple minutes to go, what is one final piece of advice that you'd give to the next generation of leaders when it comes to travel? You know, I, I would say there's nothing that opens up your mind, even your heart, to new and unknown things than travel. So that's one I would say. Travel as much as you can. Go to places that are even a little bit outside your comfort zone. I wouldn't advise anybody to go into a war zone or anything. But outside your comfort zone, for sure, one, one should try and travel. Don't keep going back. I, I know I have friends and a lot of people do this, go back to the same place for vacation every year. Well, you know, that's a whole different kind of travel and you're not gaining anything new from, from that. Nothing wrong with doing it if you choose to. This is, this is one thing that I would say. The other thing I would say is that, you know, news headlines, by definition, tend to exaggerate what the real circumstances in any given place are. And, uh, you know, some bad thing happens in a country and all of a sudden that entire country is in no go zone. I mean, you know, bad things happen in the U.S. as well. I mean, in fact, I literally, somebody was reading gun crime statistics from the U.S. and asked me if I feel comfortable living here, was safe living here. You know, it's just uh, when you're looking across the other side of the world, uh, you see a microcosm of what the place is and, and not allow. You often hear the worst thing in the news because that's what's going to sell the headlines. Yeah, ex yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you, if you take the U.S. State Department advisory for travel to Pakistan, nobody would ever go there. And in fact, they don't get a lot of tourists coming there. But even as a Pakistani, I would be scared to go there. And, you know, I, uh, I go there and, and many people do. And, but leave that aside. Um, most places in the world, I mean, you know, people right now would think that there are many no-go places. And I bet you, yeah, 80% of them would be fine to go. But you have to make sure that you're planning it right. You know what you're getting into. You've got some local people guiding you where to go, where not to go. I mean, if you're going to London, you can just fly into London and book a hotel and stay there, you know. But if you're going to Uzbekistan, you need a little more local guidance. So I think that's what I would advise. But I tell you, travel has been uh, the biggest joy of my life and just seeing things and as it has been for you um, and, and seeing new things, seeing things outside of our comfort zone, seeing new cultures has just been wonderful. Uh, it's amazing, Castro. I wholeheartedly agree with pretty much everything you said. It's, uh, and, and you know, one thing, I'm just really glad that I'm not the only person and it doesn't matter your generation. It doesn't matter your upbringing, even your interest level. Like there's more open in the world than there isn't. And I'm looking forward to many more conversations where we can compare notes about our travels with you. So thanks for coming on the pod. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been great. I enjoyed it a lot. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at PGAlumPod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network. 
a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time. Holy Potluck. Potluck. Potluck.